Hear now again the word of God for God's people. First Peter chapter one, verses three through nine. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great word. Lord, we are gathered here this morning to hear you speak, to hear your voice and not mine. Father, we pray that you would speak according to your word and by and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you prepare our hearts to receive this message as good seed sown upon good soil, that it may grow and bear good fruit, good and godly fruit that brings you glory. We pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we would be convicted, and that most of all, Lord, we would see Christ in your word. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we're now uh, one month away uh, past Easter Sunday. And I want to begin this morning by asking you a question related to that. And the question is this. Are you still celebrating the resurrection? I hope so. Because the reality is, brothers and sisters, as Christians, uh, every day is Resurrection Sunday. It's not enough to uh, gather together on one Sunday out of the year and to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No, for believers, for those of us who are united to Christ by faith every single day, is as joyous as that Resurrection Sunday. Why? Because every day we are celebrating, we are living that new life that Christ accomplished for us, gave to us, secured for us through his resurrection. So long after we've uh, put away the uh, yard ornaments and the door hangings and the, the rabbits and the carrots and the Easter eggs, long after that stuff has gone away and everybody else has moved on, I want to encourage you to continue praising the Lord for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that's what Peter's doing here. This section of Scripture is essentially a prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving that Peter is offering unto the Lord. And at the center of this prayer is the truth of the resurrection and what Jesus has accomplished for us and especially for Peter. Remember back to Peter's experience, right? Who better to thank the Lord for the resurrection than Peter himself, right, who stood there outside the Jewish council. And after the rooster crowed three times, Peter had denied his Lord three times. The Lord looked at him and Peter knew in that, mo- in that moment what he had done. Can you imagine if that was it for Peter? 
Can you imagine if there was no resurrection after that, how crushed he would have been in his grief? Because he denied his master. And yet, because of the resurrection, Peter has hope. And it is that hope and that inexpressible joy. And I imagine that's what it was like to walk into the tomb and see it empty and then to stand with the disciples and Jesus to appear there and to see your risen Lord, the one that you had denied, but now the one who would restore you in forgiveness. I can imagine that Peter was filled with inexpressible joy. And he's here to tell us about that today. And so I I want to encourage you, if you're not already celebrating the resurrection, I want you to do so. Uh, 365 days out of the year. Uh, The title of this sermon is Endless Praise, and the life of a Christian really is a life of endless praise. It never stops. It's It's not finished when we walk out of these doors here today. It's not finished when the Sunday is concluded and we start our regular week. Every single day is a day of praise for us as believers because of what Christ has accomplished. And so I want you to be encouraged to go about in your everyday life, whatever that looks like for you, and be continually and consistently praising the Lord through the whole day and praising him particularly for what Christ has accomplished in the resurrection. So we're going to talk about praise particularly, and this sermon has three points in its outline. If you're note takers, this should help you here. The first point that we're going to talk about is the imperative to praise, the imperative to praise. An imperative is a command. And I believe that this passage commands our praise. It commands us to praise God for the resurrection. So that's our first point, the imperative to praise. The second point is our reason for praise. Because what this passage also does wonderfully is it doesn't simply command us to praise, but it also gives us quite a few reasons to praise. And so uh, in reading this passage, we should just spill over with motivation and desire to praise. And so the second point of the sermon is the reason for praise. And then finally, we'll uh, talk about the endurance of our praise, the perseverance of our praise. The reality, brothers and sisters, is this life is difficult. Uh, There's there's no mistaking that the Christian life is not one that is a bed of roses. And Peter is honest about the fact that, that, that there are trials and difficulties in this life. And yet he wants us to realize that our praise uh, will endure, and it will endure not because of our strength, but because of Christ in and through us. So that, that's where we're, we're headed uh, this morning. The imperative to praise, the reason for praise, and the endurance of our praise. Notice that Peter here starts out in verse 3, uh, blessing the Lord. He blesses God. Now, I want us to, for a moment just to think, uh, how often in our prayers are we actually blessing God? I think many times, particularly in times where we're, we're facing difficulty or we're going through trials, our natural response is, is to feel uh, needy. And many times our, our prayers, of course, are focused more upon ourselves and those trials and difficulties and our suffering. We, we pray, uh, but our prayers really don't get beyond ourselves. Now, we're told in Scripture and encouraged in Scripture to come to the Lord with everything, to bring all our burdens before him. Right to, to bring the things that we're struggling with. But what I, I want us also to be encouraged by in this text, particularly, is to also bless the Lord uh, for his good gifts, to bring a prayer of thanksgiving unto him. Uh, this is the imperative uh, to praise. I want you to think for a moment of Psalm 103. 
Right. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Right. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. It's a it's a statement and a prayer of great praise. Blessing the Lord in prayer. The Lord desires us to do this. He desires us to not only be 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 concerned and captivated by our by our lives and what's going on in front of us, but to actually bless him to focus on the gifts that he's given. And I, I, I truly think that the more that we focus on Christ and we more, the more that we focus on the blessings that Christ has achieved for us, the smaller our suffering will appear, uh, the less difficult those trials will become. And so let me encourage you by the command and imperative of this passage to bless God in prayer, to bless him with your life as well, to live faithfully before him. Now, notice uh, it says here that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here we begin to move from the command to praise and the command to bless God and into the benefits of what Christ has accomplished for us in the resurrection. And notice that the first benefit here is that he has caused us to be born again. Now notice that notice the way that that's written, right? He has caused us. You see that the, the one who authors our salvation is God himself. The one who works out our salvation is God himself. The one who has secured our salvation is God himself. He is the one who causes us to be born again. Do you remember when Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus Nicodemus in the Gospel of John? And he's speaking about this concept, right? He's talking about what it means to be born again. And Nicodemus is quite confused, isn't he? He says, how in the world can, can I, a grown man, enter once again into my mother's womb and be born? That doesn't make any sense, right? You know, and sometimes as, as, as believers and as Christians, we can repeat that phrase, to be born again. But you understand that people outside of the faith look at us in the same way that Nicodemus was looking at Jesus. What in the world do you mean to be born again? Well, here we get a, we get a picture and, and, and a better understanding of what that means, Right? Peter here is speaking of a, 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 a being born again in a spiritual sense, that what Christ accomplishes for us through the resurrection is to actually give us new spiritual life, new spiritual life. Throughout the New Testament, the language uh, of what occurs at the resurrection is this, particularly I'm thinking of Romans chapter five, that right we are actually buried with Christ in his death and then raised to new life. Well, Paul is not speaking there of a physical being buried with Christ, but actually of a spiritual being buried with Christ and raised to new life. And so when we speak of being born again, what we mean here and what Peter means is that we have been given, gifted new spiritual life in Christ. And what a wondrous thing that is. But that's not all. It's like this uh, Billy Mays commercials, you know, that's not all. There's more, right? And, and what's more is that not only have we been gifted and granted a new spiritual life in Christ, but we've also been guaranteed a new physical life as well. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the fact that these, these bodies that we have now will be resurrected. Only what's wondrous about the fact that the, 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 the new heavens and the new earth is these bodies will be made new, right? These bodies will be perfect. They won't be they won't be frail and feeble. They won't be beset by sin, but they'll be they'll be perfect. And so not only has the resurrection accomplished for us a new spiritual life and secured that for us, but it's also accomplished and secured for us a new physical body in the new heavens and new earth. 
Well, that's something to praise God for, is it not? <laughs> there, there's our first reason for praise, right? What has the resurrection of Christ accomplished for us? It has caused us to be born again. We've been given new life uh, in and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, look with me next. It says, right, that we've been born again to a living hope, a living hope. Now, why is our hope living? Because our hope is in a person and that person is living, right? The tomb is empty. Christ has risen from the grave. If he is the substance of our hope, right? Our hope is living because even now, believer, we're told that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And do you know what he's doing for you? He's interceding on your behalf. That is, he's standing before the Lord and he's continually he's continually declaring his righteousness over you and for your sake. So that every time Satan comes before the throne of God to accuse you, to condemn you, Christ is there to say, no, he is pardoned. She is pardoned. She has new life in me. There is no charge that the devil can bring against you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is your living hope. Your living hope is standing at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. The author of Hebrews tells us that because Jesus is there, that means that we also now have access to come before God. I was teaching my students. Again, remember that uh, Tim and I both serve at Bind. Christian school and I was teaching my students through Romans and in Romans 5 we're told that because we're justified by faith in Christ we gain access before the throne of God Almighty and I got quite animated when I was telling them about the fact that listen students do you understand that the God who stretched out the expanse of the galaxy who made every flower and made every creature who set the sun in the sky and the moon in the sky. Do you realize that that God is is a God that you have an audience with, that you can at any point during the day, at any point, day or night, perhaps you can't sleep, you can come before that God and you can speak to him. Brothers and sisters, you have the ear of God Almighty. What a wondrous benefit. What a wondrous benefit that Christ has accomplished for you through the resurrection. He is your living hope. He is your living hope. We, we can also understand that, that Christ is our, our living hope and has uh, given us living hope because Christ working in and through us produces uh, godly fruit. And for that reason, it's living as well. And that when Paul says in Galatians 3, right, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in and through me. That's what he's talking about. It's the living hope of Christ, which works in and through us so that we actually in such a way live and, and display Christ to the world uh, by, by the way that we live. And that is your living hope being worked out uh, through you and through your life as well. It's a fruitful hope. It's a productive hope as well. So these two are the first benefits of the resurrection that we have been given and gifted. Next, uh, he goes in to speak in verse four. Would you look there with me of a heavenly inheritance? And he uses three words that are particularly striking to describe this uh, inheritance that we have received. Look at verse four with me. It says that we have received an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, imperishable, undefiled and unfading. What is this inheritance that he's speaking of? Well, to receive an inheritance, right, uh, uh, means uh, that there's an association of a family name, right? If you're going to inherit something, right, it's something that's going to be passed on down through your family. 
Well, this tells us then that we have been brought into the family of God, right? We've been adopted into the family of God. And because we are part of God's family, we are now going to receive that which is God's. And what is what what does God own? All things. Right. Not only this, he is the ruler and, and king of heaven, particularly. So that means, brothers and sisters, that this inheritance that Peter is speaking of here is the glory and the riches of heaven. So that if you are a part of the family of God through Christ, that is the inheritance that is yours. Even now, that is what Christ secured for you. You remember when he says in the Gospels, right? Do you not know that I go to prepare a place for you? And, and we're not simply going there as guests. We're going there as members of the family of God. You have a seat at the table because of what Christ has accomplished. You're invited to the the table of God to come and to sit and to feast with his name written upon your forehead because of what Christ has accomplished. Let's look at these words briefly that describe this this heavenly inheritance that we've received. He first begins by describing it as imperishable. The word here means without decay, without decay. Now, listen. Uh, we don't need any confessions here, but I'm sure every single one of you have got a, a, a Tupperware of leftovers uh, in your fridge that you really don't want to touch because it's been in there for three or four weeks. It's got some, some blue and white uh, stuff growing on it, and you, you kind of just keep pushing it to the back of the fridge, right? It's like, oh, I'll, I'll deal with that later, right? We, we keep moving it to the back of the fridge. Uh, trust me, we've got a few Tupperwares like that in our own fridge. Well, listen, the, the inheritance that we've received in Christ is not like that, okay? It will never go bad. It will never decay. It will never grow old. The inheritance that we have received is imperishable, it's incorruptible. It's indestructible. Nothing uh, can, 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 can take it apart or deconstruct it. It is indestructible. It is imperishable. It is not like the things of this earth. Right? We, we, we know uh, that looking around, we can see things fall apart. If you leave a building untended over time, nature will claim it back. Right? Uh, It will begin to deteriorate, right? If we don't maintain our homes, they'll begin to deteriorate. If we don't maintain our bodies, right? Our bodies over time also begin to deteriorate, right? Things on this earth decay. Eventually, they come to an end. But we're told here that our heavenly inheritance is not like that. It will never decay. It will never go bad. What a wondrous fact, uh, regarding our inheritance that we have received. It is imperishable. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, which I already mentioned, Paul tells us that our bodies are going to be like that. Isn't that good news? Your body will be without decay. There will be no aging. There will be no growing old. Our bodies will be perfect. Okay, Listen, I, I, I'm only 30 years old. I'm already starting to feel it. I, you're not, I'm not, I was trying to do some tug of war with our students on uh, Friday. Um, and I was hurting afterwards. I was hurting, okay? We know, right, that over time our bodies begin to grow feeble and frail. The new heavens and the new earth, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will not be like that. Our bodies will be perfect. It will be without decay. That inheritance is yours. That's what Christ has secured for you. That is good news indeed. Now, the second word that he uses to describe this is undefiled. Uh, This means without any kind of defilement. It means unstained. It's a statement of, uh, uh, of purity, a statement of purity. We know uh, that the, the things in this world are not pure. 
Right? We know that uh, our bodies, our hearts, our minds, because of the reality of sin, are not pure and holy as God himself is. Right? We know that our consciences are stained by the effect of sin. Right? None of us can stand up this morning and say that we have never had an evil or malicious thought towards someone. We can, none of us can stand up and say, I have not sinned. Right? First John tells us if that's what we're saying, then we make God out to be a liar. No, every single one of us can recognize that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are therefore not pure and holy before God. But our inheritance here is described as holy. So how can we, as sinful and imperfect humans here, receive an inheritance that is pure and holy? Well, only if we ourselves are also made perfectly holy and pure. And brothers and sisters, that's, that, that, that's what we're going to receive. In heaven, we will be utterly free from sin. Hallelujah. (laughs) I'm ready to be done with sin. I'm ready to put off, as Paul, with this body of sin. I'm ready to put it off. In heaven, that will be true. There will be no sin. There'll be no maliciousness. There'll be no lust. There'll be no grief. There'll be no form, no no kind of sin uh, that, that clings to us in heaven. We will be pure and we will receive an inheritance that is also pure and undefiled and unstained. This word is used elsewhere to describe God himself. The reality is, is in heaven, we will be pure as God is pure. And that is a wondrous thing to think on. Again, how many reasons for praise are we given here? Let's look at this last word, uh, unfading. Without fade, without end, without wasting away. Some of you perhaps are gar- are, are, uh, enjoy gardening, maybe, uh, I would, but I have no time to do it. Uh, there are a, there's a certain kind of flower, right, called perennials that normally will bloom all year round. And uh, these, uh, these flowers are, are pretty hardy for the most part. They'll make it through uh, most all of the seasons normally if you uh, treat them right. Well, even perennials, though, of course, uh, eventually will die. Uh, they, they can't last forever. As flowers, they, like the rest of the things on this earth, will eventually fade and decay. Uh, and you don't have to take my word for it. Peter tells us this, in fact, uh, in verse uh, 24 and 25. Would you just look there with me? Notice he says, the grass withers and the flower fades. The grass withers and the flower fades. But then if you look right after that, what does he say? But the word of the Lord remains forever. The things of this earth will fade, but the glory of God will never fade. And this is the word that Peter here uses to describe our heavenly inheritance. It is a bloom that will never uh, die out. It is a a bloom of perpetual and eternal joy uh, that will never fade away. This is the inheritance that Christ has secured for you and and for me through the resurrection. He has given us and gifted us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's incredible. We have so many reasons to praise. Notice next, he says, that this inheritance here is being kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And here we begin to transition to the third point of our sermon, which is the endurance or perseverance of our praise. What's so wonderful about this statement is 
that Peter here is reminding us that the reality of our salvation and the reality of this inheritance that we've received, it's not, it's not something that we're going to, to get by how firmly we're grasping onto it. Okay, There's a wonderful a hymn written by Ada Habersham that was recently redone uh, called uh, He Will Hold Me Fast. And I, I love this hymn. I love this hymn. And it, it, it says this. It says, I, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. My love is often cold. Christ will hold me fast. The refrain uh, juxtaposes our, our, our feebleness, our frailty with the surety that Christ is holding on to us and gripping us with a stronger grip than we could ever hold on to him. And we need to hear that, don't we? Because you and I know, right? C.S. Lewis calls it the law of undulation. What is that? It's the reality that our lives as believers have mountains and valleys. Okay, I, I don't know where you're at right now, but perhaps some of you are on the mountain. Some of you maybe have a rich devotional life right now. Your prayer life is rich. You're spending time with the Lord and you're just on the mountaintop enjoying that communion and fellowship with God. But perhaps for others of you, you may be walking through the valley. You may be experiencing trials and difficulty. You may feel as though you're walking through the wilderness and, 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 and your spiritual life is dry and you're thirsty for a drink of living water. I don't know where you may find yourself, but we need to hear, whether we're on the mountain or in the valley, that the reality of our heavenly inheritance is secured for us, not because we're holding on to it, but because Christ himself is guarding it for us and he's keeping it for us. So not only is your inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, but it's being guarded by Christ so that nothing can take it away from you. And didn't Christ tell us that in John chapter 10? Remember what he says? That nothing can snatch you out of my hand. How, how wondrous are those words? No, no scheme of Satan. Nothing that man can come up with or do can take away that salvation from you. It is being guarded and kept for you by Christ in heaven. That's what I need to hear when my faith is weak, when I fall into sin again and I'm frustrated with myself and I hate that sin, but I can't seem to get rid of it. Like Paul, I do not do the things that I want to do, but the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. In those moments, I need to hear that my salvation is being kept and guarded by Christ. Because if it was up to me, if I was the one holding on to my salvation, I would surely lose it. I would surely lose it. But by God's power, by God's power, this inheritance is being kept and guarded for me, ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul will say with confidence in Philippians 2, right, that God will bring to completion the work that he's begun in you. Believer, do you believe that? Do you have that same level of confidence? Paul knew what it was like to struggle with sin. We certainly set him up on a pedestal as an apostle, but understand that he struggled with sin as mightily as you do. And yet he was able to say, I know, I'm confident of this, that what God has begun in me, he will bring to completion. I want you to have that kind of confidence as well. It is yours. Your heavenly inheritance is not secured by your grip upon that inheritance, but it is secured by Christ himself who guards it and keeps it for you. And so verse 6 says, because of this, we rejoice. We rejoice. We're full of joy. 
We're full of joy, even in the midst of our trials. He says right now you may be going through a trial, but you can rejoice. You can rejoice because of this reality. And this is where the endurance of our praise comes from. We can endure. We can persevere. We can push forward in faith because we know that Christ is holding us fast. And so we can rejoice and continue to praise even as we pass through the fire. What wondrous confidence we're given here. Paul will say in uh, 2 Timothy that uh, he, is, he is sure. These are great words here. He says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for I know whom I have believed. And you notice there, he's not talking about a doctrine. He's not saying, I know about the resurrection and therefore I'm confident. He says, I know whom I have believed. That is, he knows Christ. He believes in Christ. And for that reason, it says he is convinced that Christ is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Again, we're told that Christ is the one who is holding us. Take assurance in that fact. Now, Peter here, I think, in verse 8, and we'll conclude with this, finishes up with a statement about loving Christ, though we do not see him. And, and, And I think he's anticipating an objection here because he knows, although he, being a disciple, an apostle of Christ, witnessed Christ uh, in bodily form, saw his bodily resurrection. He knows he's writing to people who have not seen him. And, and don't you sometimes feel that way? Well, if I, I just feel like my faith would be stronger if I could see Christ in person. I feel like my faith would be stronger had I been able to be there like Thomas and place my hands into the marks on his palms and into the wound on his side. Sometimes we feel like if I could only see, my faith would be stronger. But I want you to see in this passage that what Peter says here is that you are actually more blessed than Thomas because you have not seen. Because you have not seen. Because the reality is, is that faith, faith does not behold what is seen. Faith beholds what is unseen. Faith is the conviction of things unseen. And Peter wants you to know that you are more blessed than Thomas. Though you have not seen him, still you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And the result is that you are filled with a joy that is inexpressible. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In John chapter 20, let me turn there briefly. I want to show you what I mean. Where, where Jesus here blesses those who have not seen and yet believe. So don't take my word for it. Hear from Jesus Christ himself. Here's what he says. Eight days later, this is chapter 20, verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. You can imagine their surprise at that moment. <laughs> then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Would you receive that promise this morning? John, the apostle, the one whom Jesus loved. Here, writing the words of Jesus, who said, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Brothers and sisters, that's you and I. 
We may not be able to see Christ with our own eyes yet, but we believe by faith. We hope and our hope, according to Scripture, does not put us to shame. With the eyes of faith, behold this inheritance that Christ has secured for you. Because the resurrection is true, this is yours. Hold fast to this heavenly inheritance that you've been given. Because he lives, you can face tomorrow. And tomorrow and tomorrow after that until Christ comes again. Be filled with the joy here that's inexpressible. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where you were just so filled with joy. You didn't even know what to say. Your, your, your body just fills up with that kind of joy. I wish that for you. I pray that for you. That should be our response when we consider what Christ has done for us. And remember that you are blessed even though you have not seen him. You are blessed as you see him with the eyes of faith. And so, brothers and sisters, praise, praise him, praise him and praise him again for what he has accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, securing this inheritance that is for you, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, who God is keeping for you until the day when Christ returns. Let our prayer be, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great prayer of Peter, who reminds us, Lord, that We ought to be ceaselessly praising you for what you have accomplished for us. But Lord, we admit that oftentimes we are burdened by the trials and difficulties of this world. Lord, we suffer for faithfulness. Not not are we persecuted, perhaps necessarily, but Lord, we suffer on a daily basis of trying, Lord, to be faithful to you and to hold fast to you. But Lord, help us to remember that it is not the strength of our grip upon you, but the strength of your grip holding us, which secures us and gives us confidence. Oh Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts and minds with this joy that is inexpressible at what Christ has accomplished for us in the resurrection. Oh Lord, may you keep us faithful And guard us, Lord, until the day when he returns and you bring your work to completion. Swift shall pass our pilgrim days and our faith will soon be turned to sight. And Lord, when we all get to heaven, we will surely sing and shout the victory. What a glorious day that will be. Preserve us until that day and give us hope, that living hope, Lord, that allows us to praise you day and day again. This we pray in Jesus name. Amen.